So good. I've been saying over the last few months that the future of church is not just going to be about our gatherings growing. It's going to be about our sending capacity, not our gathering capacity. It's going to be about who we release into the kingdom and the power and the purposes of God. It's not about gathering lots of bored Christians sitting in rows on a Sunday. It's about releasing people in the adventures God has for them. And, uh, you know, that's not just about church planting. Not everybody's called to plant churches, but we are all called to mission. And there are a lot more people called to plant churches than we dare to acknowledge or believe at times. And so, you know, if I, if I could describe the new building that I would love us to have as a church, it will have temporary walls that we, as people get saved and give their lives to Christ, we can extend the walls out, these um, draped walls, and then when we send a few hundred people out to plant five churches, we contract the walls in a little bit, and then we keep seeing people added and coming to faith in Jesus, and then we push the walls out, and then we send hundreds back out and to plant more churches. Wouldn't that be quite an adventure? And it's quite hard, isn't it? Because we're going to be losing in doing that, some key people running some ministries. And so that means if you're not called to go, you're probably going to be called to step in the gap of some of those who have gone and take up some of the things that they were carrying. And that's going to be a challenge. We're also going to miss some people, aren't we? We're going to miss sitting next to those same people on a Sunday. But I'm far more committed to seeing the kingdom of God and the glory of God revealed on the southwest and beyond than I am about our comfort here on a Sunday and our gathering as a church. And surely, surely, if we can be a people that cry out to God, not just in our songs, but in our hearts and say, yes, God, we are wanting to make ourselves wholly available, then I believe that with God, all things are possible. Can you imagine in 10 years' time, 100 churches, new churches being planted by people who have connected to us at Rediscover. Wouldn't that be just such a wonderful thing to see villages, towns, and cities engaged with transformational gospel that's changing homes, it's changing lives, it's breaking generational curses, it's transforming the atmospheres over entire communities. Wouldn't that be amazing for our kids in the schools to be singing songs of adoration and worship to King Jesus, for our young people not to be plagued by the addictions of drugs and the strongholds of self-identity problems, but that they will be a people that are liberated with that peace that Isan mentioned earlier on. People that are liberated with the joy of the Lord being their strength. Wouldn't it be amazing? I remember years ago going into a Christian school, a high school, and we had an opportunity to pray with lots of young people. And there were young people in the assembly lying with their bodies all over the floor because they were under the power of the Spirit in the assembly, receiving the Holy Spirit that day. Wouldn't that be amazing to see that, not just in Christian schools, but across state schools, seeing the power and the kingdom of God come? And come on, why not? Why not? If not us, then who? And if not now, then when? That was a saying that captured the imagination of a whole movement around the time of the liberation of Romania. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Say, well, Mark, we're just coming out of a pandemic. We're a little bit stretched. We've got crisis. We don't know what's going on. I don't even know who's in the church anymore, you know? We don't know, God. Surely there's a better time than this. I want to let you know there's no better time. This is a time for new wineskins. This is a time because there's new wineskins being prepared for new wine. And church, you're called to be part of it. There's no spectator stands. God is calling each of us. And as we conclude this five-part series looking at the glory of God, which is part of our vision statement as a church, our vision statement is really simple. It just says these words, revealing the glory of God to the southwest and beyond. And over these last five weeks, we've been looking at revealing the glory of God. And our key text is taken from this one simple verse in Habakkuk 2, 14. And it says, For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be. Say that word will, will you? The earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. I don't care how secular this age is. 
I don't care how out of vogue God is. His word says, for as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of his glory. I believe the Southwest doesn't know what's about to hit it. It's not going to be a clever church strategy. It's not going to be a wonderful increase of numbers of people engaging in Alpha. It's not going to be some clever little device. It's not going to be some new conference. It's not going to be a new worship song. It is going to be the glory of God that's going to sweep across the Southwest. Reinhard Bonke, um, when he was alive, he had a vision as a young man to see a blood-washed Africa. I have a similar vision to see a glory-filled Southwest, to see the power and the life of Jesus Christ sweeping through every village and town and school and old people's home with the glory of the Lord. And I believe, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? And today, as we conclude this series, I'm going to look at the glory of God in our worship. First couple of weeks, we looked at what is the glory of God. Then we looked at the glory of God in our fellowship, and we looked at the fellowship with the Spirit through solitude, and we looked at the fellowship through authentic community with each other, and how both of those are important dynamics. Last week, we looked at the glory of God in mission, how the Spirit is on the go, He's on the move, and we find Him when we find out what He's doing and we accompany Him. This morning, in our final session, we're going to look at the glory of God in our worship. And the glory of God and worship are intrinsically linked. Whenever God reveals himself, there is worship. John Piper, the famous, the famous author and pastor, he said these words. It's a bit of an adaption of the Westminster Catechism, which says, our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, everyone in this room and everybody watching online, of course, knows what worship is, don't you? Worship is lifting your hands, it's kneeling, it's singing, slow songs. Not the fast ones, that's praise, isn't it? Worship is the slow ones. It's those ones that have a reduced drum beat. That's what worship is, yeah? Those things, they, they can be expressions of worship, but they're not worship in itself. I was reading the other day a story of a billionaire who died. His name was Howard Hughes. Part of Howard Hughes' wealth had been established by the development of lots of casinos across that famous place in Las Vegas. And they decided on his death that they would, as a mark of respect for Howard Hughes, that they would um, have one minute silence observed in all of the casinos that he owned. So it came to the moment and these unusual, noisy, bustling scenes became an eerie, still place. There was no noise. There was no spinning of the roulettes. There were no machines playing their sound. Everything stopped for 60 seconds. And then the casino boss looked at his watch. He leaned forward and he said, okay. Let's roll the dice. That guy's had his minute. You know, there are times when our honor of King Jesus is more akin to giving him a minute than it is our life. Maybe it's not a minute. Maybe it's an hour and a half on a Sunday. Or maybe it's just a couple of minutes at the beginning of the day. But not everything we do that's religious, that sounds spiritual or righteous, or looks like worship, is actually received by God. Let me just look for the next few moments on some of the things that might just capture this. We see in Genesis 4, two brothers, two sibling rivalries. And we read in verse 3 of Genesis 4, it says, When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift. The best portions of his firstborn lambs from his flock 
And the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. What's going on here? Could we divide this room down the middle and say, everybody on this side, God's loved your worship this morning, but you lot. What's going on? Because that's what happens here. Two of them, one's received and one's rejected. Is God just a bit strange? Does he just have an intolerance around him? Is there, is there something that um, he's you know, a, a little bit inconsistent? What's going on? Well, let me just look at another similar type of story around the time of Jesus. So going forward many thousands of years now, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, in verse 41 onwards, it says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple, and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. And there were many rich people who put in their large amounts. But then there was a poor widow, and she dropped in just two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all of the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. So it's not about how high the hands are raised, how well the songs are sung, how big the gift is that's given, there's something underneath all of that that is our worship. Let me step the level of offense up to another level right now. Because in the book of Amos, there's some really powerful provocative words. Amos 5 verse 21. Look at this second word. I hate. This is God talking. I hate all your show and your pretense. I hate the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice. I want to see an endless river of righteous living. Whether it's the coin, the offering, the song, the hands, the knees, the body that's prostrate, there's something beneath all of that. Those things can be expressions or pretense, but God is looking for something sincere. God is not looking for churches to sing the latest songs well. Now, I'm, we're so blessed here. We've got fantastic musicians and singers, haven't we? And we're so blessed, but they, they worship together. The other night, they had an evening where they all gathered in the room together, and they just worshipped. They just enjoyed, not, they didn't rehearse, they just worshipped. The presence of God was incredible in the room. It was beautiful. But what is going to change this nation is not a church that sings well and plays well. It's not a church that lifts its hands well in our services. It's not a church that when Sean gets up and says, after three, if God's been faithful, shout your praise to him now. And the decibel meter goes in uncharted territory. That's not what's going to win the Southwest to Jesus. But a church where those things are one expression that come from a sincere heart. A sincere heart that cares about justice, cares about righteousness, that will bring change. 
Isn't it incredible that even our religious exercises can be offensive to God? But there's something else I want to look at worship as we bring all these strands together. And that is that in the Old Testament, we read that worship was often about a location. It wasn't just about the attitude of the heart and the well-being. It often happened in a place, in a set place, and also at a set time. We have captured some of that sentiment in today's world. If you look on Google Maps, um, I'm not sure whether this place is. I think it probably is. But there are buildings all across the UK that are highlighted as places of, places of worship. And we see that the precedent for that is set very much in the Old Testament, that there were places of worship. There were altars, there were temples, there were locations that people went to worship. In the Old Testament, the time and the place of worship was significant. Deuteronomy 16.16 says this as an example. Each year... Every man in Israel must celebrate these three festivals. The festival of unleavened bread, the festival of harvest, and the festival of shelters. On each of these occasions, all men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he chooses. But they must not appear before the Lord without a gift for him. So there were times... And there were places, and there were gifts. We even see in the life of Jesus, many thousands of years later, that he went to the temple. In fact, you remember the scene when he went into the temple courts, and there were traders, there were people who were exploiting other people's welfare, and Jesus turned the tables over. It would have been so offensive to the religious people of its day. He turned the tables over and he says, my house is called a house of prayer for all nations. I would love to have seen the righteous rage in Jesus at that moment where he dispelled the unrighteousness that was in this temple and reminded them of why they were there. But Jesus, at another conversation, with the woman at the well, Samaria, Jesus announced that we were living in a very new day. Let's look at John chapter 4 together. Verse 23 says, But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now. Say after me, would you, now? now. The time is here now when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those that will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We see that Jesus was announcing that no longer was a certain location the place to worship. Because the conversation was facilitated by this Samaritan woman saying, our ancestors say we should worship on this mountain, but you say we should worship here. And Jesus says, it's not about the place any longer. It's not about the location. In John 2, just a few chapters previously, Jesus also said something else that was fascinating. Because he made a claim that if they destroy the temple, Jesus will rebuild it in three days. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that the constant journey of building the temple and rebuilding the temple and restoring the temple, it's been a, a journey over many, many generations. And here's Jesus standing in front of all the people who had that in their ancestry, and he says, if you break the temple, if you smash it, destroy it, it will be rebuilt by me in three days. But Jesus wasn't talking about the bricks and mortar. Jesus was announcing that he is the temple. The three days wasn't the restoration of bricks and mortar. The three days was that you will crucify me, but I will come back to life in three days. 
that he was talking of his own resurrection as the temple. But it goes even more wonderful than this. Because as a result of Jesus rebuilding the temple, in him, of his, of his um, restoration, of his resurrection, we read in Ephesians 2.21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. We are becoming a temple. Not this place. Thank God for buildings. You know we love a new building. We're actively looking for new buildings. We believe God has promised us a new building. But he's not looking for a place to dwell. He already has a people that he dwells in. Because Jesus is the temple who has made it possible for you and I to be his holy temple being built together in him. So listen to this. It means that wherever you go, you are a walking temple. Let's think about that workplace you go into. All of that language surrounding you. All of those values that don't feel like they're compliant or they're complicit with justice and righteousness. And there you are in the middle as a temple, a place of worship. But you're not invited in to be like a holy temple as some inanimate object. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, it says, and you are living stones that God is building his spiritual temple into. What's more, you are his holy priests. Yesterday in Birmingham, there were a number of my friends and colleagues that were ordained as Elim ministers into the Elim Pentecostal Church, which we're a part of, and we have about 600 congregations around the country. And they, after years of study and years of oversight and years of training, finally made full proof of their ministry publicly and were ordained. And they now have the privilege of being able to call themselves Rev. Can I just look into your eyes a moment and say, God has ordained you Amen. as his priest. I'm not any more priestly than you are. It doesn't look like a lot of excitement around that in the room. You and I, we are priests. You may not be able to put the word rev in front of your letter, but why would you care about what you can put in front of your name on this earth when what heaven whispers over you is that you are my priest? So you're a priest with a living, being built with a living stone into the temple of the Lord. It goes on to say, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We're priests. We're living stones. We're temples of worship. But let me just put a real significant, important context into all of this. And that is that we are lovers. It's a lot of conversation around in church leadership circles. It's been around for years where we've scratched our heads and agonized and beat ourselves up and we've sat in seminars and we've read books around one topic. And that is, how do we effectively make disciples? Because that's the charge given to the church. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of us in ministry feel that we've done a pretty bad job at that. So the question is, what do we learn from the bad job we've made and how do we correct it and how do we do a better job? I think the reflection is we've done okay at attracting crowds, but we've not done very well at releasing disciples. 
I want you to know we are absolutely committed here to making you and me a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But I want to let you know that often those seminars, they come to a place where it launches a new course or a new program or a new study or some silver bullet that will be presented or a conference you can attend or some prayer ministry that you can have. And we're looking for it. Is this the answer? Is this the silver bullet that will enable us to make better disciples? And I want you to know the thing that makes effective disciples of Jesus is when we know that we are lovers. That's it. Because if we're living our life righteously out of anything other than love, it's legalism. It's duty. We are lovers. Song of Songs is a deeply powerful and intimate reminder. The language is incredibly poetic. Sometimes it makes young men blush when they read the Song of Songs, when it talks about <laughs> one of those verses that you remember. Enjoy the breasts of the wife of the breasts of your youth and all those sort of things, but I'll let you dig into the Song of Songs to find them if you've not found them already. But at the end of the day, Song of Songs is a love letter to his church to you, to his living stones, to his bride. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8 onwards. Ah, I hear my lover coming. He is leaping over the mountains. He's bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he is behind the wall. He's looking through the window. He's peering into the room just to get a glimpse of you. My lover said to me, rise up, my darling. That's what I believe the Spirit of God is doing in his church right now. If you've been dead, if you've been lukewarm, your lover, he bounds over the hills, he takes you by the hand, and he says, rise up, my lover. I believe that there's a great time of refreshing coming upon the church in the UK, and it's going to be a time when the revelation of our heart opens up with an understanding, a reminder that our lover reaches into our hands and he lifts us up. He says, rise up. Because when you've found the love of loves, there's no sacrifice that you wouldn't pay. There's nothing you wouldn't lay down. The problem is, so often I meet people and they say, if I become a Christian, do I have to stop this? Do I have to start doing this? It's the wrong question. It identifies to me that you've not encountered the fullness of his love. Because if you have, you won't be saying, how much can I get away with? You'll be saying, how much can I give? Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past. You know, I think in this country, we're going to come into a tough winter. We see the crisis, the energy crisis, the queues for fuel, go to the supermarkets and shelves, more empty than we've ever seen them. There's lots of things, people losing their income support, uplift. These things, they pain us. But I want you to know, spiritually, look, the winter is past. 
and the rains are over and gone and the flowers are springing up. There's new life springing up all over the place. There's new life growing in God's garden. The season of singing birds has come. The cooing of turtle doves, whatever they sound like, fill the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. You are so much more loved than you have got any understanding of. Often when I officiate at weddings, it's a great, always a great privilege, a great honor. And a couple come and they stand here or wherever else the wedding's taking place. And part of the vows, they look into each other's eyes and this has been the moment they've been waiting for. And I ask them to repeat after me. One of the lines included in those vows are forsaking all others. Keep only unto them as long as you both shall live. In all my years, and I forget how many weddings I've officiated at over the years, everyone's been a great privilege. But in all my years of asking that question, I've never had a couple say, can I just think about this for a moment? Do you mind if I just phone a friend? Do you mind if I just... Um, have you got a flip chart? I'd like to make a list of all the pros and cons. No. They can't get those words out quick enough. Why? Because they know that they loved and they know that they love. We see the story of God is a love story. It's a story where time after time, loved people do unfaithful things. And it's like we're adulterous with the Lord. One of those Ten Commandments, you'll have no other God before me. I want you entirely for myself, says God. You might think, I'm not a very spiritual person. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that could plant a church. I'm not one of those people that can lead a ministry. I want you to know, that's not what we're asking. We are identifying and saying, the word of God says that you are a temple. You are a priest. You are a living stone. You are a lover. And will you, forsaking all others, keep only unto him as long as you live? Interesting about this battle for our worship, this battle for our loves. Because we read that as Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted, that there were three temptations that Satan himself came and brought to Jesus. The third of these temptations, the, the pinnacle, if you like, the, the ultimate temptation. He said in Matthew 4, verse 9, he showed Jesus that which he had come to seek and to save. And he said to him, I will give it all to you. In other words, don't worry about the cross. Don't worry about the pain of Gethsemane. Don't worry about those sweat drops of blood. Don't worry about being in that tomb. I'll give it all to you. If you will kneel down and worship me. See, what the enemy craves above everything else is worship. He wants to be loved. And when you and I say, I am forsaking all others and my temple, my life is committed entirely to my lover, Jesus. That is the most powerful spiritual warfare that you can engage with. Nira and I were visiting a town in Devon just a few days ago, and this town, it felt like there was a spiritual oppression in the atmosphere. In fact, I could see just 
the, the effects of the enemy on the people that passed me on the street. I could see the oppression in their life. I could see they were like puppets under the spell of an enemy. And I just knew in that environment that the enemy was having a field day, but I didn't stand there full of fear. I stood there knowing that I am a temple of God and that I can worship my God. And I worship changes atmospheres. I worship it kicks the enemy in the teeth and says, I'm not worshiping you, I'm worshiping God. God's glory is revealed when his faithful lovers overflow with worship. I'm going to conclude in a moment. But I'm going to conclude with a story that I always find to be one of the most striking occurrences in the scriptures of when the glory of God fills the temple. There have been songs sung about this, this, these few verses. There have been sermons preached. There have been books written. Let me read them to you. Isaiah chapter 6. It was in the year the king Uzziah died, that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with smoke. The Shekinah. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it. And he said, see this coal has touched your lips and now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. A few weeks ago, a bunch of us guys went away for a camp, just an overnight, and we lit a big fire in the forest. And we encouraged people to pick up sticks or logs, symbolic of their areas of shame and failure in their life, and to throw it on the fire. And the fire extinguished it. It burnt it up. And this coal from the fire now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Church, we have to grasp that. We have to grasp that we are undone, but for his fire. And then, as a similar ending to last week, then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to the people? Who will go for us? He's asking that question of you today. I wonder, will your answer be the same as Isaiah's? I said, here I am. Send me. Just close your eyes a moment.
sense both a punchiness and a gentleness of the spirit present in this room right now. Who will be my temples? Who will be my living stones? Who will be my priests? Who will be my lovers? Who will rise up knowing that the fire of God has touched your life, transformed you, who will rise up with the glory of God filling the temple of your life? Who will be a walking temple of worship? I've got to encourage you. If I could come around each of you and wrap some ribbon around you and do the opening ceremony of like you do with a building and then get a scissors and say, I commission you we celebrate the opening of this temple. I'm not going to do that, but I wonder if metaphorically you say, as has already been expressed by a few voices, I will. I wonder if you'd stand and lift your hands to heaven in this holy moment. Here I am, Lord. Temples of worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. We don't just cut the ribbon, but we consecrate, we dedicate, forsaking all others. Fill these temples with your glory. sing that again but no band no instruments no vocalists to hide behind your voice is important the sound of your voice is important in the context of eternity God hears your heart expressed through your voice So I'm going to encourage us now to sing that again like a choir. Let the harmonies rise. Let the sounds pour out of you. Let the Spirit of the Lord come and fill these temples as you're finding your voice. I love you, Lord, and I lift my Take joy, my 
like honey on my lips, your spirit like water to my soul, your word is a lamp unto my feet, Jesus I love you, I love you. Jesus, 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 Holy and Anointed One, Holy and Anointed One, Jesus. Risen and exalted one, risen and exalted one, Jesus, your name is like honey on my lips, your spirit like water to my soul your word is a lamp unto my feet jesus i love you i love you
So we dedicate these temples, oh God. Not bricks and stone. Hearts. Lives. Gifts. Talents. Possessions. Thoughts. Attitudes. Living stones. Lovers of God. And I pray this week that these temples will be temples of worship. Anywhere, anytime that we would honor you. So at the close of this series, we thank you that as the waters fill the sea, so the glory of God will fill the earth. And if it can fill the earth, it can fill the southwest. And if it can fill the southwest, it can fill your village and your town and your city. And if it can fill your village and your town and your city, it can fill your home. And it can fill, if it can fill your home, it can fill your life. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? In Jesus' name, amen.